The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the noble in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. Their libations of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Because you are right at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices and my whole body dwells secure for you do not give me up to Sheol or let your godly ones see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So if you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible on it or an iPad with a Bible on it, I want you to open it to Psalm 16, which I just recited. We'll have some of it on the screen up here, but if you can follow it on your own, I think it will make more of an impact because we're gonna look at this Psalm in great detail for the next hour. Let me set the table for you before I pray and ask God to come and do mighty things among us. And the reason I feel an anticipation that he's going to do remarkable things is because the way he has set up this evening. So two weeks ago, I was in the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota fishing with my son and, and uh, six others. And one of those others was a 20-year colleague whom I love, who has been the worship leader at our church for 20 years. And when we got back to the outfitters, he was to call home, and the phone call was that his son had died at 22 without the slightest history of trouble. He was in Northern Ireland doing a mission trip and simply fell over and with his sister at his side, met Jesus. The funeral was last Friday, four days ago, and little did we know that Alex, before he had left for Northern Ireland, had told his small group what he wanted in his funeral. He didn't think he was going to die, but he said, here are the songs. We sang all the songs that he chose. And here's the text that I want. Psalm 16. That's the psalm that I was asked to speak on months ago at this event. And so last Friday, in front of about a thousand young people mainly, I was doing what I just did, praying over these people, Psalm 16. And now I'm here speaking to several thousand people not too much older probably than Alex, Psalm 16. And in my judgment, 
God is setting that up to burden me for you in a way that he wouldn't or couldn't any other way. You have no idea whether you will live out this week. None. He had no history whatsoever. And to this moment, we do not know why he died. Let's pray. So Lord, I believe this is a a divine appointment for many. Whether it be the case that some here will not live out the week or whether they will live 60 more years, it's a divine appointment and the weight I feel for this psalm to come to reality in their lives is very great. And so I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come in the name of Jesus. I plead with you to come. Don't leave me to my resources. I look away from myself and I ask that these friends would do the same. May they look away from themselves and all their performances and look wholly to you to speak to them now so that what David is and sees in this song, they would be and see and feel. I ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let me give you the main point, as I understand it, in one sentence. So I'm going to try to sum up the main point of all 11 verses in one sentence. It goes like this. God will bring you body and soul through life and death into full and everlasting pleasure if God is your safest refuge and your sovereign Lord and your supreme treasure and your trusted counselor. I know it's a long sentence. So I'm going to say it again, and then we're going to move through the entire psalm verse by verse, and you will watch for whether I'm right to sum it up this way. It goes like this. God will bring you body and soul through life and death into full and everlasting pleasure if God is for you your safest refuge, your supreme treasure, your sovereign Lord, and your trusted counselor. And so if he's not, my prayer is that as God speaks through this psalm, he would become that for you. A few of you who really know your Bible well might hear that summary in one sentence and say to me, are you going to uh, take into account what the Apostle Peter over in Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament makes of this psalm? 
Because Peter says that verses 9 to 11 are a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. And you didn't mention that in your main point. Why not? Because that's the one thing he picked out of the psalm to mention. And my answer is, number one, yes, I am going to deal with what Peter makes of this psalm in Acts 2. And number two, the reason I don't say that the resurrection of Jesus is part of the main point of this psalm is because I don't think it is, but rather is a massive and unshakable argument for the main point of the psalm. And if that sounds strange to you, that something is massive and unshakable and great and glorious as the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead should be an argument under a main point supporting it, just know this, that one of the great and amazing and <coughs> wonderful things about the Bible is that again and again and again, glorious things, massive, unshakable, beautiful, awesome realities are made to serve practical, personal main points in texts. That's amazing, and that's true all over the Bible. So yes, we will get to Peter's application of verses 9 to 11 in the resurrection, and we will discover it is not the main point of this text. The main point of this text is that God will bring you body and soul through death into full and everlasting pleasure if he is your treasure and refuge and sovereign and counselor. That's the main point. So let's try to think David's thoughts after him now. My goal when I read the Bible and when I interpret the Bible is simply to try to get inside the head and especially in the Psalms, get inside the heart of the writers and think the way they think. Follow their reasoning. Have emotions that correspond to their emotions as they are seeing truth and responding to it with a spirit-inspired power and guidance. This psalm begins, verse 1, with David's petition. And that's an important word. This is a petition, a request, a prayer, a plea. Preserve me, O God. That's a prayer, right? God, preserve me. Now, you don't know yet from what or for what. All you know is, this psalm begins, save me, preserve me, protect me, keep me. And you have to just suspend judgment for a, a few minutes. We will see it. From what? What are you worried about? 
Preserve me, O God, is the way he begins. And that petition colors everything in this psalm, as we will see. And now he moves forward. What does he do in moving forward? He begins declaring and exulting in what God is for him. And he does that for seven verses. He declares and he exults in what God is for him. And the effect that has on his petition by the time he gets to verse 8 is stunning. It's amazing. So let's, let's follow him as he does this. Verse 1 Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Because I take refuge in you, preserve me. I take refuge in you, therefore preserve me. You see the, the way the two, the declaration, you are my refuge. He is hoping with all his might will have an effect on God to incline God to preserve him. That's what for means, right? Preserve me for, preserve me because. I'm taking refuge in you. So you, you see me taking refuge in you as my safe place and you will therefore preserve me, will you not, God? So the first thing he does is Declare and exult in God as his refuge, a safe place. I'm turning to you. I'm not turning to other places for safety. You are my safest place. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Whenever you see all caps Lord in the Bible, it's because behind it is the Hebrew proper name for God, Yahweh. I say to Yahweh, God, you are my small cap, small letters, Lord, Adonai. Yahweh, you are my Adonai. Yahweh, you are my Lord, my master, my sovereign. That's what he's saying. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Exodus, is his master, his sovereign. And he exults in it. He doesn't just state it as a doctrinal fact. God is sovereign over me. You are my sovereign, my Lord, my master. I exult in you as my sovereign. So now we have, you're my refuge, and you're my sovereign. Verse 2, middle of the verse, second half of the verse, I have no good apart from you. God is his highest good, or my language, God is his supreme treasure. All other goods in life are good because of God. God is his supreme treasure over everything and in everything. I have no good unless you're in it. I have no good apart from you. You are my good, my ultimate treasure. So now we have 
God is his refuge, and we have God is his sovereign, and we have God is his treasure. He's exulting in what God is for him as he moves forward. Verse four, verse three. He underlines now and emphasizes this supreme value that God has by saying what it is about people that makes him glad. I'm going to underline how precious you are to me, God, how you're my only and highest good, no good except when you're in it. I'm going to do this by talking about how I relate to people, what makes me happy and glad about people. And so he says, as for the saints in the land, that is holy ones, godly ones, the ones who treasure God and live for him. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. All my pleasure. All my joy. Which does not mean that he delights in the saints, the godly ones, instead of God or above God, but because of God. In other words, as as he contemplates all the kinds of people in the world, All the worldly people, all the powerful people, all the influential people, all the people that could scratch his back. He says, there's one kind of people that make me really, really glad. People that treasure God. And I wonder if you're sitting there thinking, I don't like the Christians I know. And I have more fun with all my unbelieving friends. If that's you, I think you should ask two questions. One, do you know any Christians? I mean, Christians? I don't mean churchgoers. I mean radical people who lay their lives down because Jesus means everything to them. They are servants of the world because Jesus has moved into their lives, turned everything upside down, broken them free from their love affair with the world and their ego and power and money and sex and they're radical people. Do you know anybody? Maybe you don't know anybody like that to dislike. That's the first question you should ask. The second question you should ask is, why would it be that you, a, a professing Christian, would find more joy in people who find no joy in what is your primary joy? What, what, what would that mean? Those are the two questions you should ask. Verse four. He underlines again his radical preference for God over all things. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon 
my lips. In other words, I am so totally satisfied in God. I am so totally sold out to God, so totally in love with God, so totally there beside God is my pleasure. If another God comes along and offers me anything, not only will I not pour out any libations of worship to this God, I won't even take his name on my lips. I will not give him the honor of naming him because how much folly is there in turning away from the fountain of living waters to embrace a God who leaves you only with sorrows in the end. They multiply their sorrows who go after other gods. I will have none of it. I have found the fountain of living waters. I will not turn away. So this is another way of underlining how supreme the treasure of God is to him. Verse five, first half of the verse. He returns, he's gonna start repeating now. He returns to the level of chapter two. I mean, verse two, second half of the verse. He had said, I have no good apart from you. And here he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So back there in verse two, he had said, I have no good apart from you. And here in chapter five, uh, verse five, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. So there's a table spread in front of him, as it were, with delectable, hundreds of delectable portions and cups filled with the finest wine. And he looks and says, there he is, God. And this cup, God. God is my chosen portion and my cup. You can spread before me all the portions you want in this world. You can spread all the cups with every imaginable taste in this world. I choose God as my portion and my cup overflowing is God, which is just another way of saying he's my highest treasure. He's my supreme good. Second half of verse five. I say to the Lord, this is what he had said back in, chapter, in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Here he says it in another way in the second half of verse 5. You hold my lot. You hold my lot. What does that mean? It means when the dice are rolled and the straws are drawn, and the wheel is spun, what happens to me, God decided would happen. You hold my lot. And so, my main point includes, if you embrace him as your sovereign, Lord, verse six, he exalts in what this means for him. If God is that sovereign, that he holds the dice, he holds the straws, he holds the wheel, he holds everything and determines what lot I draw, what does that mean for him? It means this, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, here we ought to do some hard thinking kind of lines that he's talking about. 
lines, lines, lines have fallen for me. What, what lines? Like fishing lines or clothes lines or? No, border lines, border lines, boundary lines. The lines have fallen for me to, to enclose me in pleasant places. Yes, in there I have a beautiful inheritance. Here's the catch. Probably when you read that, you might think of places as geography in Palestine, where he lived, and you might think of the inheritance as the, the land. Here's the, it, it might include that, but here's the problem with that. The Hebrew word translated pleasant places is the same single word in verse 11 translated pleasures. In your presence are pleasures forevermore. And so a natural way, if you wanted to keep the translation consistent, would be to say in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasures. And if you said, what pleasures? Well, it would be the pleasures of verse 11. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And the borderlines around me are God's, you hold my lot. You define for me the borders that hedge me into God as my pleasure. Just like verse 11 is going to say. I doubt, therefore, that he's talking about real estate here. I got no problem with God being good enough to give you a home, provide you maybe even from your parents an inheritance of a parcel of land. Wonderful. Amen. I just don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's saying, since God holds my lot, the thing he does that is greatest with his sovereignty for me is that he circumscribes with these boundary lines. He circumscribes my life and he pushes me into the center where there is fullness of joy, namely God himself. That's my understanding of verse 6. And therefore, there's not much difference between the sovereignty of God and exalting in it and the supreme treasure of God and exalting in it because God says here, I hold your lot, the lines have fallen for you in pleasures that are me, therefore God's sovereignty for me means I make myself your treasure. With all my might and my sovereign power, I make myself your treasure. So my my enjoyment of the sovereignty of God is that it is exerted mightily on my behalf to make sure God stays my treasure, my pleasure. He is our treasure, and now we're going to see that he is our, our counselor. Verse 7, he goes one step further in exulting in what God is for him. God is not only refuge, treasure, sovereign, but now he's counselor. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
In the night also my heart instructs me. Now that's not a small add-on. And the reason I say it's not a small or insignificant add-on to refuge, sovereign, and treasure is because trusting God as your counselor affects how you experience God as your refuge and as your treasure and as your sovereign. Let me just illustrate what I mean by that. God is a refuge in um, part by the way he counsels us. God's being a refuge for you is not automatic. It's not mechanical. It's not like you pay zero attention to his word and his counsel and you simply find yourself safe. It doesn't work like that. If you find yourself in danger, danger of harm, danger of a sin, danger of some absolutely foolish way of life, and God comes to you with his counsel, he's telling you how to find refuge. Don't go there. Don't do that. So his counsel is the means of his becoming refuge for you. This is dynamic. This is interactive. God's word are his counsels to us, and his word is the path of life, not death, the path of safety, not destruction, and therefore he's becoming a refuge for us all the time as he speaks to us. Or treasure. How does his being a treasure for us relate to his being a counselor for us? Well, because you don't only treasure God because of his character, righteous and just and true and gracious and loving and wise. You also treasure him because of his teachings, his words. Remember the Soldiers who came back and they said, why didn't you bring Jesus? And the soldiers said, nobody speaks like this man. His disciples were constantly jaw-dropping at the kinds of things he said. His counsels were stunningly satisfying and beautiful. So he's our treasure, not only in the way he is, but the way he talks to us. And so being our counselor intersects with his being our treasure. And the same thing is true about his sovereignty. God is sovereign over you, sometimes in spite of you. He just cuts you off at some stupid direction you're going and you didn't approve of it at all and he rescues you. Other times he exercises his authority and sovereignty through his counsel to you. God uses means as well as acting sovereignly apart from means. So the first seven verses are first, preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me, O God. And then four declarations and exaltations. You're my refuge my safe place, you're my sovereign, my Lord, you hold my lot, 
and you are my treasure supreme. I have no good apart from you, and you're my counselor. Now, what in the flow of that worship happens to his petition when you get to verse 8? I have set the Lord always before me. That's what he's been doing. Because he is at my right hand, this refuge, this sovereign, this treasure, this counselor, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That's not a request anymore. That's an affirmation. So the way I understand verses 1 through 8 is that what begins as an aching longing, preserve me, O God, ends with, I will not be shaken. I will be preserved. I will be kept. He will not let me be lost. And the, the pathway from the petition, aching and longing, to the assertion and the affirmation and the confidence is heralding and exulting in what God is for us. And I would simply commend to you that way of praying. Because almost all my beginnings in prayer begin the way his does. I, I, I seldom begin a worship service or a time of prayer in solitude red hot for God. Totally confident. This is going to go well. This day he's in charge. It's going to go right. He'll give me his guidance. I, my prayers don't begin that way. They begin, help! <laughs> Which is the way he began, right? Preserve me, oh God. And then what do you do? You stop and wait for a confidence to happen? No. You do what he did. You do what he did. You declare. You can do it alone. You can do it in a small group. You can do it as you sing. You declare what he is for you. And you exult in what he is for you. And after you do that through safe refuge and highest treasure and sovereign Lord and trusted counselor, confidence is rising. And that's the way the psalm flows, it seems to me. Now, on the basis of that confidence, we arrive in verse 9 as the great high point of the argument the therefore of joy. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, let me just make sure you see this. I'm going to draw it for you in the air, all right? This is the way, the way I think. Um, here's the petition. Here is him rising in um, exaltation in what God is for him, and here is, I'm confident I will not be shaken, verse 8. So, help me, you are my God in all these ways. I am confident, therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, it's going up a level. So, so here, here's a level, here's a level, and you got this little post here. You can draw the little legs on the post if you want to, like this. And this is a pillar holding up a great truth, and the truth is, <laughs> my heart is glad. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. 
And so joy, so far, we got nine verses, and the argument has built up to the top level here of joy. So the petition leads to the exaltation in what God is for him, which leads to confidence that he will not be shaken, which leads to pervasive and deep joy. And now we are at the point where we're going to get the answer to the question, what was he seeking preservation from? Because this joy here in verse 9 is not only supported, okay, here we are back at my drawing, watch. It's this, this top level of joy is not only being supported by this massive confidence that I will not be shaken and my, my petition has become a confidence. I will be preserved. I will not be shaken. Therefore, I'm happy. Notice the little word that begins verse 10. Somebody just shout it out. Read it. Four. Am I right? You will not let me be handed over. My flesh dwells secure, safe for you. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. For because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your godly ones see corruption. That is, I will not dissolve in the grave. You make known to me the path of life. So, on this side of the platform of joy, you come down with a four. You got a therefore over here, confident, will not be shaken, therefore joy, because, because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now here's what this says to me. I want to know, David, what you were talking about back at the beginning when you said preserve me. I want to know in what sense you will not be shaken. What were you concerned most about here? And I think verse 10 tells us, I don't want to die. I don't want to be dissolved. I, I, I don't want for death to end it all. And his joy in verse 9 is based on the confidence on the one side that he will not be shaken. And that is spelled out on the other side with the because clause of verse 10. Because you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. That's what he was concerned about in verse 1. Preserve me, O oh God, from death. Don't give me up to death. Don't let me be shaken out of the land of the living. I want to live. I want to live forever. I love you. You're my refuge. You're my treasure. You're my sovereign. You're everything to me, my counselor. And I want that to be true forever. I don't want to perish. I won't be shaken and therefore I am glad because because you won't abandon my soul to shield you won't let your godly one see corruption 
So he is absolutely sure that he will not be destroyed by death. It says in Psalm 49, 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Or Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. So because God is his portion here as refuge and sovereign and treasure and counselor, God's going to be his portion in all those ways forever. David is confident that that's the case. So let me state my main point again. See if you agree. God will bring you body and soul, body and soul. My flesh dwells secure. You will not let me see corruption. God will bring you body and soul through life and death, through life, through death, into full and everlasting joy. Verse 11, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God will bring you into full and lasting pleasure if God is your safest refuge, your highest and most supreme treasure, your sovereign Lord and your trusted counselor. I think that's the main point of the psalm. And of course, we have left out Peter in Acts 2. Now, I don't want to run to Acts 2 and lay it on this psalm before I let David have a chance here. I think sometimes we do that we say, okay, the New Testament gives the key to unlock the deeper meaning of the Old Testament, which it certainly does, and we take the key and we fling open the door before we even look in the room, before we even look at the door, before we look at the lock, before we let David, we let David have his whole say. This is what I've been trying to do. Nathan, the prophet, came to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, and he said this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. This is the prophet talking. It's not opinion. David knew he would lie down with his fathers and face decay. He knew that. It was told him by God, you will die and lie there just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David knew that he would die, that he would lie in the grave like his father's, but that God would set one of his descendants upon his throne and this descendant would not be simply one of a succession of kings on the Davidic throne. He would 
end all succession because he and his throne will reign forever. Which means somehow this king is going to triumph over this horrible enemy that has brought an end to every single king. Death is not going to have victory over him. It's not going to have dominion over him. Somehow he is not going to be lying in the grave like I am with my fathers for decade and century after century. He knew that. He knew that was going to happen. A Messiah, a King of Kings, a King of David, a Son of David would come. He knew this. You don't need anything in the New Testament to know that. David knew this from prophetic truth, which is what makes the fulfillment in the New Testament so glorious. David lived in the consciousness, I will die down with my fathers, I will dissolve in the grave, one will come after me who will not suffer dissolution like me. He will not decay, his throne will be forever. And so here's my question, what does verse 10 mean? In view of being aware of that, David is aware of that, and he writes this, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see the pit or to see corruption. What does he mean? He knows he's going to see corruption. So, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, says this. This is his thinking. David did see corruption. He did see the pit of dissolution. He knew he would, and so verse 10 goes beyond what would come true for David goes beyond what would come true for him even in the resurrection after he was dissolved, put back together in the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age like the rest of us who are believers. It went beyond that and said, you won't even see corruption. Now here are are Peter's very words. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 30 to 32. And this tells you why I thought the way I thought Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, this psalm, David begins with a petition, preserve me, O God. It moves to an unshakable confidence in verse 8 and part of verse 9 where he says, my flesh will dwell secure. And yet, David knew he would die. He knew he would also be rescued from death for eternal 
joys at God's right hand. And he knew that there would be a Messiah who would not die the way he died, not lie in the grave. And he knew that somehow that Messiah who would bring death to an end in the succession of kings, death would be no more. That event and his own experience of pleasures forevermore at God's right hand had to be related to each other, and he didn't know how. Peter, more clearly than anybody in the New Testament, said it this way. This is Peter's first letter, chapter 1, verse 11. The prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But they didn't know. David saw through a glass so darkly, he didn't know. Okay, I'm going to live forever somehow, and yet I'm going to die. I'm going to rot in the grave, and yet I'm going to have joy at God's right hand forever. There's coming one after me who will be from my seed. He will not be just a succession of kings. He will stop the succession. He will live forever. He will conquer. He will not be dissolved, and they kind of be related Somehow that relates to me because that happens. This is going to happen and I don't see it. And that's where it's left in the Old Testament. It was revealed to them, going on in 1 Peter, it was revealed to them that they were serving you who have been preached the gospel so that we on this side of the grave, we know how they fit together. We know that David and all those who trusted the promise of Christ, and you and all of you who trust the person of Christ are united to Christ so that when Christ triumphed over death, you triumphed over death, and you with David will not be left in Sheol, but you will enter into the path of life that leads to everlasting pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. We know that now, that Jesus allowed himself, in fact, he chose to be swallowed up by death for sinners like us, but inside the belly of that fish, he poisoned it to death, and it vomited him back out into life, and death died because Christ poisoned it from the inside out so that everyone who is in Christ will not be destroyed by that monster, but will be set free into everlasting life. That's what we know now more clearly than David knew, but oh, what he knew. So he, here, we're closing with this. If it's true, and I'll just read Romans eight eleven here, if it's true if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you got that? If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through the spirit who dwells in you. So here's your question in closing. What are the marks of the person who has the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? Because if you are that person, you will rise from the dead and you can be the most radical human being in the world because your death problem is over.
My answer is the marks of the person who have the Spirit of God is exactly the same today as it was in Psalm 16. Namely, God is your safest refuge. God is your supreme treasure. God is your sovereign Lord. And God is your trusted counselor. And you now know that he will be forever because you hold fast to Jesus who by his death and resurrection made all of that possible. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, I ask now that by the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, you would come. And as we sing one more time, the magnificent refrain of Psalm 16, that in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You would grant every heart in this room to cleave to you as a refuge. May they flee from every other refuge. May they hold fast to you as their highest good and their supreme treasure and turn from every other treasure as a competing God. May they hold fast to you as a God who holds their lot and is their sovereign King and Lord. And may they fly to you even now as a trusted counselor who this very night will tell them by your word what they should do for life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him.